0: Hi, welcome to episode three of Global Exchanges, a podcast about foreign exchange markets and related issues. I'm Greg Anderson. My co-host Stephen Gallo and I will be joined by guest Colin Hamilton in this episode. Together, we will discuss developments in global commodities markets with an emphasis on Chinese demand and Australian supply. The title for this episode is Asia Pacific Currencies and the commodity price
1: spike. Hi, I'm Stephen Gallo, a London-based FX strategist. Welcome to Global Exchanges presented by BMO Capital Markets.
0: Hi, I'm Greg Anderson, a New York-based FX strategist. I'm Steven's co-host.
1: In each weekly podcast like today's, we discuss our perspectives on the global economy and the foreign exchange market. We also bring in guests from the FX industry and from related
0: financial markets like commodities. We strive to make this show as interactive as possible, so don't hesitate to reach out by going to bmocm.com slash globalexchanges. Thanks for joining us.
2: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
0: Here we are on Tuesday, March 16th. And we're here with our first guest, Colin Hamilton, a commodities analyst for BMO based in London. Stephen, I know you were itching to get Colin on the show. In a nutshell, why? Well, Greg, I'd like to get some insight from Colin
1: on where he thinks China is in the policy cycle, how policymakers are managing risks within the economy, and if there's scope for policymakers to encourage perhaps different economic growth drivers in the coming one to two years.
0: That's great. And for me, I cover the Australian dollar. It is a commodity, well, mostly base metals currency. So I want to hear his outlook for metals. I think I'm going to kick things off by
1: starting with the currency angle, in particular, because this is such an important policy lever for policymakers in China, and by setting some context, too. So we know that 2020 was an exceptional year for the Chinese economy, not only because it had a quick rebound from COVID-19, but also because of its relative economic outperformance. And we also saw this reflected in two things. Number one, the balance of payments, and number two, the RMB. It gained about three and a half percent last year in trade-weighted terms, and it ended the year about 7% higher against the U.S. dollar. But if you turn the page to 2021, it looks like the pace of RMB appreciation has slowed, particularly when we look at dollar CNY. That currency pair is basically flat year to date. So I'm wondering, Colin, from your perspective, were there any clues from the latest MPC sessions and the 14th five-year plan concerning China's management of the currency and where China currently is in the policy cycle?
3: Yes, thank you, Stephen. Uh, Welcome, everyone. So, it's interesting for me, as a commodities analyst, I feel like half the time I'm a China policy analyst, uh, because if I get China policy right, I go a long way to getting these commodity markets right. And what we've had is a Chinese economy that, as you mentioned, led the rest of the world in terms of the recovery, but is now at a point where some of the reflationary pressures we were seeing through the second half of last year have started to become inflationary bottlenecks. And with that, it as PBOC is already saying, the Chinese economy is growing up potential. And when we get to this point in the cycle, that's normally where they start to press back on the brakes pedal a little bit. Now, heavy fixed asset investment growth uh, driving uh, a lot of the cycle last year. And what we also saw was still strong export markets for China in certain areas. And we saw particularly around the manufactured goods side and, of course, medicinal equipment side. Still importing a lot of commodities, so obviously when we talk about commodity currencies, you mentioned it there, the RMB, that is obviously one half of the commodity currency trade at any point in time. Your marginal buyer thinks in RMB terms, and it has become much more expensive for them to import the raw materials that is needed for growth. And then when it comes to the policy side, that in itself is starting to feed through into the inflation numbers we're just starting to see the brake pedal pushed a little bit. And we are going to see a little bit of tightening coming through on the, on the property market in particular, caps on leverage for developers. But as we look forward in terms of what's coming up from the NPC the meeting, the growth targets, in my view, were pretty conservative, should be easy enough to hit. I do think we're at a point where the Chinese government is starting to get a little nervous about the non-performing loans that may be coming up in the second quarter of the year. And I think just a little bit more stability in currency and indeed in economic growth at the current time.
1: So if I understand you correctly, Colin, to sort of summarize things, what policymakers are doing is effectively heading for a better quality of growth as opposed to outright quantity. They're being pretty conservative with their growth estimates. And policymakers are a little bit nervous about risks within the economy. I know you mentioned NPL specifically. So do you think that means they're pushing for a more balanced Economic model or economic recovery with more emphasis on on household consumption?
3: Yes, I I think they really have to get the the balance back in the economy. When push comes to shove, as it did last year, they always uh, reached for the fixed asset investment labour and they pulled it very hard. The consumer has lagged. Uh, And retail sales are now starting to come back, but I think they would like to see the consumer add a little bit more. The more the consumer can do, and and what we've seen from the Ministry of Commerce is a push in areas like autos, appliances, catering, uh, so as in installing new energy-efficient cooking equipment, these are the sort of areas they're looking for the Chinese consumer to spend on. Now, if that is successful, and uh, I think it will be, that allows them to pare back the fixed asset investment just a little bit and keep the economy in a more stable path as we look forward. Now, the nature of the recovery we had in China was a very metals-intensive one. I mean, we are sitting uh, a year past the Chinese economy, just starting into emerge from lockdown, lockdown. We have copper prices roughly double what they were this time last year. We have iron ore close to record highs. That owes a lot to the fact that we had a very metals intensive recovery, and your marginal consumer being, being China. As we start to see consumption pick up and policy pair back on the fixed asset investment side, that obviously takes a little bit of the edge. I think we've had a lot of competition for units in commodity markets over the past six months. But China strong and it's China recovering, now that China presses on that brake pedal, will I be looking for a, a little bit less aggression in commodity prices? In fact, I have most of them trending lower over the next six months. It will still be a strong year and overall global demand growth for commodities. But in terms of the competition for units, which I think is key for commodity prices, I think you will see that appear back a little bit. And what we'll go from is a situation where we've been trying to incentivize marginal supply into commodity markets. For the past three to six months, we'll start to move to a point where we are maybe trying to push some off and dissuade some supply from the market as we look into the second half of this year.
0: So, Colin, one of the things that I look at often in my analysis of the Australian dollar is the Bloomberg Base Metals Index. The index was very stable in the 170 to 180 range in the second half of 2019 when we were pre-pandemic and the world was close to what I would call full output the index dipped about 20% to 140 or so at the outset of the coronavirus crisis, as you would expect. But then it began to rally. The base metals rally was particularly fierce over the first couple months of 2021. Now we're looking at a base metals price index in the 230s, so roughly 35% higher than pre-pandemic. We've got global GDP at well below pre-pandemic levels, and we're nowhere near full output, but base metals are 35% higher. Maybe I'm asking you to repeat yourself, but this is something that is really important for metals currencies. So could you run back through how that has happened again?
3: Thanks, Greg. It owes to the fact that China is the biggest industrial economy, and for metals, in 2020, China was more than 50% of copper, aluminum, nickel, zinc demand for the first time in history. So really, it owes a lot to that China side, and we had Chinese growth numbers that were actually quite spectacular in the second half of the year. That created a lot of pressure on the raw material supply chain, and still, with the supply side impacted a lot, particularly in areas of Latin America, by COVID-related restrictions, the supply side just couldn't react in time. And with that, it's created some bottlenecks in the chain. And it is these bottlenecks that have led to the inflation in prices, helped by the fact that the ex-China manufacturing chain had destocked pretty hard through the second quarter of last year. As they started to recover and restock, that did create that competition for units. So that, for me, is the key thing that's been driving prices to uh, where they are and outperforming uh, many other areas of the global economy. It has been a very metals-intensive recovery and a very China-led recovery in the metals side.
1: So, Colin, on that point, just to pause there and just talk a little bit about the inflation dynamic. I wonder if the overall picture just points to a preference on the part of policymakers for continued stability in the currency just for the time being. Not a lot of volatility either way. On the one hand, you have, and we talked about this, you have policymakers tempering the credit cycle a little bit, trying to take some of the heat out of the investment-led growth story, which I guess, argues for a slightly weaker RMB or less appreciation. But on the other hand, because of the backup in inflation pressures, strength in commodity prices generally at the global level, they also don't want the RMB weakening sharply either. Would you agree, disagree with that? How would you comment on that?
3: Yeah, I I think I would agree with you, Stephen. I mean, it's it's always an interesting point for them, but I think the low growth target points to the fact they're still relatively unsure about the global economic situation at the current time. I think there's uh, persistent concerns there. And to me, stability is key now. It lets them give a, gives them a little bit of leeway to rebalance the economy. It means they're not having to deal too much with uh, massive capital inflows or outflows, which is something they've struggled with, I think, in the past. And if we stabilize things, then, as I say, they can come up with more coherent policies as we look a little bit further out. And, of course, part of the recent MPC meeting was the launch of this 14th five-year plan, setting out the economic agenda for the coming five years and beyond.
0: Colin, you you talk about stability, but there's one area where we've seen a little bit of instability over the last several months, and that's in the uh, trade relationship between Australia and China. China, starting last fall, began imposing a bit of a buyer's strike on various Australian commodities. My question to you is, is this an economy-altering thing for Australia? Are they not going to be able to sell these raw commodities anymore? Or are those commodities fungible and they can sell them somewhere else? Along with that, if China doesn't buy from Australia, where do they go to buy these commodities?
3: That's a great question, Greg, and certainly one I've been answering a lot over the past six months or so. First of all, I think it's important to note that two of the key trade flows have been maintained. Iron ore. China gets 60% of its iron ore from Australia. So the thing that really fuels the steel industry. Well, it cannot do without that Australian supply. So, not surprisingly, that hasn't been included in the trade friction. Nor has LNG, where, again, Australia is the biggest supplier into the Chinese market. Obviously, LNG very strategic in the decarbonisation process for China as a whole. In my world, the ones that have really been affected are copper. And to answer that one, well, certainly that copper is pretty fungible. It can be sold elsewhere. We've seen a lot of traders swapping cargoes of copper concentrate. So, that material can into China. So, there's been a, a quick rebalancing of trade flows on the copper side. One which is perhaps a little bit more challenging is actually metallurgical coal. Australia, a huge supplier of metallurgical coal to the global market, 60% of seaborne trade emanates from Australia. And of that, while well, China was taking about 25%, that trade has completely stopped. That has one where we have seen dislocations. In fact, we saw a situation not three months ago where the Chinese domestic price is actually double the Australian export price. A situation we've never seen before. So major dislocation. Now we're starting to see trade flows normalised. Australia started to ship more cargoes to India and a little bit more to Japan. And we are seeing more US and Canadian gold cargoes heading into China. Obviously that helps the US agreement in terms of taking more energy material. The other area China is looking to is Mongolia. A big coal supplier, and we're starting to see more cargoes come through from there. And the other thing, though, the interesting thing that I think is very underappreciated, as part of this process as well, China's invested pretty hard in technology to allow it to use more of its own domestic coal again. So it's got a declining resource, but by investing in technology, and it is low-carbon technology it is reducing emissions, well, that's also allowed them to uh, lower the call a little bit on international markets which actually plays well into their dual circulation strategy, which is another key component of the coming economic agenda.
1: Colin, one of the things I wanted to ask you was about a topic that showed up a lot at the NPC meetings and in the five-year plan, this green agenda. Now, it's not unique to China. We've seen this in many other jurisdictions, the focus on environmentally sound growth. But I wonder if... The focus on this from China's perspective is also to do with energy security in terms of managing or curtailing the vulnerabilities that China has faced here over the years, particularly on fossil fuels, if the green agenda and the green targets have something to do with mitigating that energy and security. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, thanks, Stephen. I think this is a big change in Chinese policy. As you say, the push for decarbonisation is a global trend. China, first of all, wants to be seen as a global leader. But the security of supply on the energy side is an important thing to them. Now, what I think you're likely to see, they've mentioned this phrase, rural revitalisation" an awful lot in the MPC meeting. It's basically taking urban land revenues and taking those revenues and reinvesting them in rural infrastructure. I think a lot of that will be on the renewable energy side. The more electricity that can be generated that way and used for things like heating and cooking and the like, well, the less they will have to import fossil fuels. So it reduces that reliance on the rest of the world. It gets China in a better energy security position. So I think that is actually an important development. I also think you've got a population which don't like the pollution they're seeing. And, and obviously, in a command economy structure, you want to keep the population happy. And with that, you are starting to see a bigger cramp down now on the heavy emitter sector. So what you're seeing, uh, the, the targets of the NPC were pretty strict. The 18% reduction in carbon emissions per unit of GDP and to meet that, uh, that's being shipped down to both the provincial and indeed industry level. You're seeing heavy pressure now on the steel industry to cut blast furnace output, and Inner Mongolia we're seeing cuts to ferroalloy and aluminium production. The net effect of this, China will still buy commodity raw materials, they'll still be investing in the raw material side, they'll still be processing a lot of those domestically, I think you will see a little bit less Chinese refined metal production. And for a little bit less Chinese refined metal exports, if you want, deflation to the rest of the world through metal exports over the coming five years.
0: Colin, you you mentioned Chinese uh, exports and processing. And I want to transition to a topic that is more rare than the correct pronunciation of aluminium. See, I said it. The topic that I want to transition to is is rare earths. So roughly 10 years ago, China imposed a brief seller strike on rare earths exports to Japan. Now we have a situation where markets are worrying about the potential of a seller strike of rare earths exports to the U.S. and perhaps other places like uh, Taiwan or or Australia. The U.S. is trying to uh, quickly rebuild its rare earths mining and processing industries. Realistically, from your perspective, how fast can this be done? And uh, how powerful is is this tool that China has of threatening to withdraw rare earths exports?
3: Yeah, thanks, Greg. It's an interesting one. Rare earths, they're one of these topics that comes up every four or five years or so. It's a little microcosm. China really does control this market. We're talking about 90% of global production in China, and the rest of the world is highly reliant. Now, it's interesting you mentioned that period uh, back in 2010 it was, where there was this battle with Japan. At that point, we actually saw rare earth engineered out of a lot of things. What now though, rare earths are sort of a core part of the green energy transition. They're used in uh, wind turbines, they're used in electric vehicles, they form particularly neodymium and praseodymium. They, they form very good magnets. So what happens now, China certainly put it out there, that they may think about reducing exports for security of supply purposes. Now, the rest of the world would struggle then, and that would put a big halt to some of the green stimulus processes that may be underway. So China has a bit of power in this regard. As you say, we're starting to see a response to this, other areas, both in the U.S. and indeed in Australia, where there is a lot of capability there. The economics, though, well... The price levels we've been at over recent times don't justify the investment, so it really has to be regulation or or government-led in terms of the response coming through. It will take a couple of years, and I think it's mainly down to the uh, downstream processing, and it's uh, it's not the nicest business. So as a result, there is some environmental permits needed, but I do think this time round you will see a little bit more action and strategic action taken by governments to offset this risk. The other area that, that I suppose is similar but not quite as extreme is in uh, cathode technology for battery manufacture where China dominates about 75% and they take about 75% global share of demand. Of course, what we now have is gigafactories starting to pop up in every individual country wants their own gigafactory for a little bit of security of supply. So I think this is going to be an ongoing trend. What it actually means for, for my markets, many of the metals markets I cover have been running on one engine for the past 20 years that's the china engine it's been a very strong engine but actually demand or first use demand in the rest of the world is actually slightly lower than it was 20 years ago in the cases of key things like copper and steel now you can make the case that you're going to have much more balanced growth going forward and that is actually helpful for longer term investment i would say in commodity markets as a whole
1: thanks a lot colin i think what end things there. Greg and I both want to thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your insights. We'll be sure to have you on again. To the rest of our listeners, we want to thank you again for listening and hope you'll join us for our next podcast in a week's time. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to Global Exchanges. Listen to past episodes and find transcripts at bmocm.com slash global exchanges.
1: We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email or reach out to us on Bloomberg. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider.
0: This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
2: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation, any commodities, securities or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified, This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.